Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. You have the book of Acts. Let's turn to chapter 23. In a moment, we'll stand and take verses 1 through 5. Hopefully, we'll get to verse 11 this morning in exposition. The title of this message is Not As Planned. I hope you are enjoying this study through the book of Acts. Because when we get to those epistles, you're going to get your clock cleaned. (laughs) Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, chapter 23, Acts according, Acts of the Holy Spirit, or Acts of the Apostles, either one works. We'll take verses 1 through 5. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Please be seated. I wish he didn't have to take it back, but he had to, because he's a man of the word. We are about 25 years after the church was born, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. About almost 60 years since the Christmas story, since the virgin birth. And so here the church is, is established uh, in many ways, thanks to largely, the, of course, the apostles and, and Paul's work. But there's still so much to take place uh, that is critical if the church is going to survive and retain her distinction. As That's what the word saint means. The word saint means you are d- distinct. There are those who are not born again, not walk, do not believe in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, and there are those that do. That distinction is between the Christian and those who are not Christians. So this morning, or this section where we're going, remember Paul was arrested in the temple. He got to preach to the people who were, trying, who were beating on him, uh, accusing him of all sorts of things. He gets to preach to them. And uh, it, it ends up here in a court hearing. Uh, it's a, still a religious matter. It will become a Roman matter later. It's partly the Romans are involved because they're the ones protecting Paul. And at this hearing, on one side you have the Jewish council. Here's a proverb that has something to do with this concerning things that God hates. Proverbs 6.18. And if you haven't read Proverbs 6... You should, especially when it gets to the part about things that God hates. He lists them throughout Scripture, but here is one where there are a few of them. And this particular one, he he says, A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. You say, well, what does that proverb have to do with this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin that Paul is standing in in front of? Because their feet, especially Ananias, the high priest, His feet are swift to run to evil. He's a wicked man, and we'll come back to him in a little bit. So there's the council, and then there's Paul standing in front of them. Proverbs 19.21. 
There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Well, have you ever had a plan and you think it's going to be well received? And all of a sudden you're getting pushed back and challenges and people are getting their feelings hurt and offended. Uh, if you say no, then you need to be a pastor. So you can experience that a few times. But of course, we all have had plans and we do what? Hey, I got a good idea. And you, you run into a, a hornet's nest. And that's Paul thinks that he's, he's got a plan. He's going to share this faith. He's been waiting for this moment. He's in front of the Jewish Supreme Court. He's going to get to preach Christ to them. But it will not go as planned. And we look at the first verse to come now fill in a lot of these blanks that may have emerged from that introduction. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, this look, it was a, the look on his face we, it's not hard to figure out what that look, this intent look was. It was, I got to make this count. I got this one shot here, and I'm going to make it count. Now, the evidence points in this direction concerning this look that Paul's eyesight's pretty bad at this point. He's not living in a time where he has corrective lenses. And those of you who wear glasses or have contacts, uh, m many of you know if you took them off, things become blurry. And that was probably what Paul was. There are other sections in Scripture that hint at this. But in Romans chapter 10, a letter that he had already written, he gives us uh, insight into how he feels about these Jewish people that he's standing before. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So this look is about getting them saved. He's, going to try, he's trying to tell them Christ is our Messiah. He's the one the scriptures told us about. And here's why he was crucified and risen and why he will return. That's what Paul wants to tell them. Of course, in little bites. It's an interesting thing that he says Israel is lost as a, as a nation, as a people. Not as in, there are individuals, of course, that are saved, as Paul is, a Jewish person. Uh, it's not about racism. It's about how the, cult, the world was then, and it largely is today. It is an interesting thing. There's a, there's a heresy called uh, kingdom theology. And it says, well, God's done with the Jewish people. The church is now God's people. Well, if that were true, then this verse says Israel is lost because his desire is that all Israel would be saved. So that doctrine shoots itself in the foot. Well, actually, the Bible shoots them uh, in their theology, not espousing violence, but certainly violence to a, a heresy, a, a teaching that is against what Scripture says. Well, anyhow, coming back to this, it's natural to hate your enemies. It's spiritual to love them. And we spend a lot of time as Christians trying to develop love for those whom uh, we otherwise would despise and hold in contempt. And that's the big part of it. As much as we are displeased with the evil coming out of many people, the, the battle is to not hold them in contempt. Well, there are many biographies about Christians who've pulled this off. One that comes to mind is Corey Ten Boom. Uh, how, uh, you know, she just learned to love her enemies. And it doesn't mean she supported them. 
It doesn't mean she did not wrestle with the evil that they did, but it does mean she always kept the Lord. She filtered everything through Jesus Christ in dealing with enemies. And, and I think that's a, a good way to say it. <laughs> Counsel here. Now, if you're visiting, I do many goofy things like that, I think. Don't take them too seriously. Uh, anyway, counsel, the word counsel here in the Greek, translated counsel in our New Testament, is actually the, the word Sanhedrin. And that is this, the Jewish Supreme Court in Israel. It is a mixed bag of Pharisees and Sadducees, two different uh, religious groups that have opposing views. And uh, they, they make up this Jewish court. They had uh, great power. It was made up of 71 men led by a high priest, Ananias in this case. And they could decide a person's fate very easily. Without having you executed, they, they lost the right to execute people unless they really hated you. But the Romans prohibited them from uh, exercising capital punishment, which, again, didn't always stop them. They, they killed Stephen. They, killed, they got the Lord killed. Uh, anyway... Uh, they had a lot of power. And uh, Paul knows that if he could win this Jewish court, oh man, that would change everything. Well, we know what's going to happen. He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God. Well, he's saying, I have followed the external demands of the law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, thou shalt not steal. I've, I've followed these, these laws, the rituals. But he also knew he had no love for the Gentiles until he met Jesus, introduced to him really by Stephen. Jesus said this about the Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee before he was saved. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus is saying to Paul, when you were a Pharisee, you tied the mint, the rule. You did all the outside things, but you had not that love. It's evidenced by their hatred for the Gentiles, because that's not Old Testament theology. The Old Testament preached that God was going to use his people as a light to the Gentiles. The Messiah died to remove sin's penalty, to pardon us from judgment. It does, you know, you can't undo sin. Once you've sinned, you've sinned. But the penalty, the punishment for it, that can be uh, taken away. And of course, when Paul becomes a Christian, Christ made this clear. Made it clear that his good deeds and his religion could not remove sin. That was his personal great awakening. Sin, again, cannot be undone, but it can be pardoned by the one who has never sinned, and that is the Christ, the Son of God. So Paul was blameless in his own eyes until, until Stephen brought Jesus to him. Now Stephen did not really, in the message that we have recorded in Acts chapter 7, he really doesn't lay out too much of the gospel as we would expect. What he does do is say, you people know the Bible and you can't come to the right conclusion. All the religion you have, you missed God. That's what really was getting, that got Paul's goat. Because these, they, were, they were zealots. They were fanatics about their religion. And in an instant, one of their own pointed out 
to them the elephant in the room. You've got your Bibles, you know your Bibles, but you can't connect the dots, can you? And, of course, Paul hated Stephen for that, uh, over, you know, witnessed his, his murder. Uh, but, but Jesus, that's what he does. He makes us guilty before God because we are guilty. He doesn't cause us to be guilty. He said, this is the law. And if you break these laws, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt others. No way around it. Well, we break the law because we're sinners. We're born that way. Some repent and are born again. The slate is wiped clean and the blood of Jesus Christ, recurrent cleansing. It doesn't just cleanse me from the sins in the past. It continues to cleanse. You know, you have some people say, well, if you die committing a sin, you didn't get to repent, you're, you're doomed. Well, that's not, that's not New Testament theology. That undoes what Paul says, no condemnation. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. If it had depended upon, well, better quick, you better get to base. You better touch base before you die. Then uh, you, you, you really see a stuck. What about the sins you, you, you don't even know you committed, that you committed? By that logic, you're doomed. But the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than all of that. Some decline and they scoff. Well, Daniel, he pointed this out in the 12th chapter. He says, And many of those who sleep, a euphemism for those who are dead, in the context makes that clear. He says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, when he says many, he doesn't mean some will, some won't be judged. He's saying, There's going to have every, there's a whole big number. All of us will face this. Some know their guilt before a righteous and holy God and resent, resent his estimation of them, classifying them as sinners, unworthy of him. And we all are unworthy of the Lord's mercy, but because of his love, he makes it available. And so this all explains his rage, his outrage against Christianity, coming up and telling him how, how bad he is before a holy God when he thinks he's been that devout Jew. Now, I'm talking about before he became saved. He could not escape his shattered sense of self-righteousness. That if he did, committed a sin, he could undo it. All he had to do was bring a sheep or something down to the temple. We still have religions that think that you, if you light enough candles, if you give enough money to the church, that somehow your sins are going to be taken away because of that. And that is a lie, according to what the Bible teaches. Where he says, until this day, I've been a follower of the law until this day. He's not boasting, he's just saying, I've, I've sought the Lord, I've served, served him as diligently as a human can. But now in Christ, he's found another level, another level of, their Judaism, he has found the Messiah. The Messiah found him, you could say, because Paul was lost, Christ was not. And so when he stands again, he says to them, hey, I have given my life to the Scripture. And if you were to question him, he says, as a Pharisee, I followed all the outward requirements. And as a Christian, I follow hard after Jesus Christ. In my failings, he forgives me. Because we know Paul, at the end, you know, he said, I am a sinner. Then at the end of his, towards the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. So it wasn't as though he, there's no self-righteousness here. Well, verse 2, 
And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, let's just say Paul's eyesight is bad, and there are people next to him. And he gets sucker smacked. That's, a, that's an extra sting. You don't see that one coming. Just the insult, the cowardice of the whole thing. They hated him so much, they relished an opportunity to smite him. And they don't make no mistake, comes out next section that we're in Acts, their hatred for this man. Forty of them took a vow, we're not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul. Of course, they conveniently excused themselves when they couldn't get to Paul. Well, the high priest that we come across in the New Testament, well, there's Annas and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. The Caiaphas was the one that presided over the judgment of Christ to get him crucified. And this third one, Ananias, who comes, shows up again in chapter 24. Now, Jewish historian Josephus tells us something about this man. Says he was arrogant, insolent, ill-tempered, hot-tempered, profane, greedy. We know that these high priests, they were not godly people at this time in their history. There was nothing about Annas, Caiaphas, or Ananias that is uh, righteous. Everything we know about these men. They were frauds. They had no problem using deception or uh, just falsities to kill people if it so served, served them. And the great proof of is Jesus Christ and the, how many laws they broke in the name of the law. But they felt they were above the law. They could do these things as Gibors tend to do. In verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now I have to watch it because I want to read that with an attitude. Because I'm rooting for Paul. You whitewashed wall. <laughs> you don't want to. Yeah. Because the, the man is just what he is telling him he is. It's not a cheap shot by Paul. He just doesn't have the right to say this. I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, again, the sting of that strike in the mouth is probably bleeding a little bit. Because you can bet the guy that smote him enjoyed it and was not going to hold back on it. So his flesh surges forward. Now this is important, but it does not take over. His flesh does not make the scripture subservient to his mood, to his circumstance. He's going to say, I did not know because the scripture said. And that is attractive to us. Because there are Christians that you can put the scripture in front of a, a behavior that they're committing. And they won't, they won't, they'll keep doing wrong. Which makes you question the degree of their confession of faith. So shocking was this event to Paul, not seeing it come, that uh, he called upon the Lord to strike. God will smite you. God did smite Ananias. Five years after this event, thereabout, or maybe a little bit more, give or take a few years, because we don't have exact dates, but we have a good ballpark, Two or three years sometimes. Sometimes it was a disaster in the Old Testament. Anyway, this Ananias, this high priest, was known by the Sakari, the Jewish assassins and other 
revolutionaries of the Jews as a collaborator with Rome. And at the start of the Jewish revolt, in, uh, well, actually it was uh, the 66 AD when it started, and, uh, you know, they, they take Jerusalem from the Romans, and the Romans regroup, and the Romans come, and they, they wipe them out. And they, they level Jerusalem, and they, they, they level the temple. The temple still has not been rebuilt since uh, that event. Well, those zealots for the Jewish uh, cause against the Roman occupation, they kill Ananias. They find him hiding. He knows they're after them when it comes to that. Uh, and they find him hiding in a conduit, and they, they stabbed him to death, and that was the end of him. So, uh, Paul's not the only one that knows this guy is, is bad news. And earlier I had mentioned that he, he is a foul man, and history documents that as well as the scripture. And so when Paul says, you whitewashed wall, well, during the Passover time in Israel, uh, the Jews would whitewash the tombstones. Because if you accidentally touched a tombstone on the way to the temple to make your offerings, you were ceremonially unclean, having, according to the rabbis, you touched a dead body. That's how they, they established it. And so they would whiten uh, these tombstones so that you could see them and say, watch out, don't, don't hit that. And, of course, they would, they would remain white. But everybody knew this. And so Paul is right on when he says, on the outside, you're washed clean, but on the inside, you're rotten. You're a dead man. That's quite powerful. Uh, with Jesus, he, the first one recorded in the New Testament that uses this against the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's Ananias, this Ananias. Remember, there's a righteous Ananias that God sent to Paul to baptize him, not the same person. This is the Jewish high priest. And he is everything Jesus said in that verse from Matthew 23, verse 27 and 8. Clean on the outside, rotten, and all of that meaning, all that goes into the meaning of rot, metaphorically applied to his character. He is a law-breaking judge. He's entrusted with upholding justice, but he is ignoring the protected rights of those who are in the court, which is Paul. In verse 4, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priests? Paul, the cards are stacked against you in this court, and we're going to let you know that. Uh, we can slap you, contrary to the law. You cannot say anything about it, because that's contrary to the law. They couldn't wait to hurl that verse at him. Their double standard dictated that it was perfectly okay for them to break God's law. It wasn't their law to break, and we should remember that. The laws of the scripture are not our laws to break, nor make. Men can do that in their courthouses, but you cannot do that with God's word, which a lot of people resent. You cannot inflict pain on others so long as you attend church. It's okay. Which is what they're saying, you know, we're double standard. 
I'm the high priest. I do whatever I want. That is a loss of integrity. Speaking of integrity, that, that is upholding what you know to be true in spite of forces that are trying to pull you away from that. God said that of Job to, to Satan. Have you seen my servant Job, righteous in all his ways? After you attacked him, he still maintains his integrity. Psalm 51, David said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's integrity. In, inside of you. It's not dead men's bones. There's a desire to follow the Lord as best you can. And here, Paul, a battered man, they beat on him while they were arresting him at the temple. They're going to start beating on him again, and, and Rome's going to again have to come to his rescue. We won't get that this morning, but that's coming. But here's Paul holding to his integrity. Job's wife, and remember, she suffered a lot, just like Job, except for the physical attack. But she lost the children and the wealth, and she gave up her integrity, too. She lost her children, wealth, and her faith. She says to Job, far, uh, Job chapter 2, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? And the answer is yes. I'm not going to curse God, because this has befallen me. And, Job, and then she continues, she says, curse God and die. That's a loss of integrity. That's where we see this in Ananias. There's no integrity in his office or those that are with him. The, you know, the, the man that struck Paul is just as guilty because he could have said, no, nope, that's against the law. I'm not, I don't care you're the high priest. I'm not smiting him. God says, don't do that. But he had no integrity either. Integrity is hard to hold. It's, it's very easy to have your standards and your rules, your, your bushido, until the pressure's on. We see it so often. We see, you know, a, a, a parent, uh, uh, you, you know, here's, okay, here's a prayer. When you want to pray for the children's ministry, don't pray for the little kids so much. Pray for the parents who get all uppity when their kid is reported to have done something wrong. And it's like, oh, the pastors love that. Oh, I can't wait to tell the parent. We lose sight of these things because we're expecting integrity. And we don't find it many times. Sometimes, we, many times we do, but sometimes we don't. It's just an interesting uh, commentary on our behavior. And I'm no different from you. I have areas, too, in my life that, uh, you know, if somebody eats the last piece of cherry pie, I get, my integrity gets challenged. <laughs> How selfish of them. Anyway. Uh, it's a, it's, integrity is a, is a big deal. And, and how do you behave when you have your, your righteous standards and then it hits you or someone you love? Now what are you going to do? You're going to start hemming and hawing? Well, the sin's really not that bad. Yes it, is, yes, it is. And if you saw it in somebody else, you'd be all over it. Integrity. It is a big deal. It is righteousness in action under pressure. See, we can be righteous when there's no pressure. I Look, I drive in here before anybody's on the road uh, uh, Sunday mornings, and it is the smoothest drive. I just got to watch the deer. And that's pretty much it. But let's repeat that Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock when everybody's trying to get to work. Uh, you know, I have found waving that pistol around at the other driver, <laughs> they, they hit their brakes. Oh, I don't do anything like that. Anyway, Job chapter 27. This is Job. Far be it from me. He's telling, he's telling his accusers that are just mean people, 
self-righteous people, almost glad he's suffering and, you know, he must have done something. He was too successful anyway. You know, the, the, the poor guy that wants to beat up on the rich guy because the rich guy is just blessed. <laughs> and, I mean, anyway, Job 27, verse 5. Far be it from me, Job says, that I should say, you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I'm not going to just agree with you when I know you're wrong. Just to make the peace. We got to love Job. Uh, he even he just said, you know, another point. So I'm not putting on a happy face about all this. And I will hold to my, you know, my integrity before the Lord. And, and God boasted of his integrity. What a, just a wonderful section. Uh, if I had my way, I would take all the words of the other guys out of the book of Job and just keep the words of Job. But God, uh, he, he's, he's funny about that. Anyway, verse 25. So, so we, we've established that this counsel that Paul is dealing with has no integrity, but Paul does. And whenever we come across these Bible stories, we have to be quick to say, who am I in the story? Am I on that council, ready to give up what is right because I want to maintain whatever uh, gains I think I have? Or am I Paul that is willing to just call it like it is regardless of what, what the consequences may be? It ain't easy for any of us. Verse 5, then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, thank God, somebody in the room knows Scripture. And somebody in the room is not afraid to use the Scripture, even if it is against himself. In this case, it is. And there's the integrity again. Maybe I should have named the message something with integrity. Anyway, I, I'm not finishing. He apologizes at once. He says, I knew not. Now, you know, we hear war stories about this. War stories are good. When you have a Christian say, let me tell you what I did and how God was merciful to me. And the reason why war stories are good is because they're transferable. You can listen to somebody's war story and apply it to your life and avoid the disaster that the other one had to go through to gain that war story. And so you talk about, you know, I did this once in life. That's experience. You can learn by perception. You can learn by experience. We learn by both of them. And trying to teach our children, it's better to learn from perception than experience. So easy case in point, uh, you know, that, that fire will burn your finger. You can perceive it. I can see what it's doing to the matchstick. I'm sure it will do something bad to me. That's perception. Or you can experience it like, you know, well, let me touch it. And, and there you go. So there's all kinds of ways to learn, and let's be careful. But this is a sorry commentary on Ananias and the council at this time. These are the people that Jesus had to deal with. But he loved them still. He wanted them to to. Repent. Well, it's not opinion that Paul says. He says, ah, you know, I don't think it was a good thing to call that to the hybrid. No, he does not. He goes to God's word. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight is what he, he quoted them. Now, you younger Christians, especially you, you young men, young adults mainly, and I think more so with the men, but sometimes with the women, in my observation, beware of being opinionated without experience. You know, you just have opinions. I think this is wrong. I think this is right. <laughs> Many times you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You haven't walked in the shoes. You don't know what's going on. And at that time, it might be better to just wait before you start 
spreading these things. Again, I am talking not only from observation, but I've been guilty of this in my youth. Fortunately, I'm older now. I don't make any mistakes. (laughs) Oh, you just did. You have your shoes on the wrong foot there. You've got to strike back, right? But anyway, I don't get that one. Maybe later you'll figure it out. Beware of that critical spirit that goes along with being opinionated. Not only do you have an opinion, but you have an opinion negative against someone else. Uh, and mainly when you think you, you, again, know what you're talking about, but have no basis for it. You may get it from an unbeliever when they say, well, the Bible is full of contradictions. They are very opinionated, but they don't know what they're talking about. And in that case, it, will cost, it can cost them their soul. So that is one thing for the young ones uh, to be careful about, to think that they just know because they don't like something or they like something. Emotionally, and therefore they know. Okay, but the older Christians, beware of bitterness. Because you've lived long enough to stack up a record of things you don't know. You realize this. And beware of justifying your bitterness. Yeah, well, I have every right to be bitter. Well, when that tail starts wagging the dog, you don't. When it starts, you know, you're the angry old man yelling at the clouds because, you know, you hate life so much. You know, as you stick around this life, all of us don't like it after a while. But that doesn't excuse us from performing. And that's the whole story behind the cries of Gethsemane and the courage of Calvary. Christ didn't, I don't want to go to this cross. At one point he said, how I wish I was there already. And at another point he gets into Eden, take this cross from me. And yet, what happened? What is the result? He beat the cross. That's the result. He took all of it. Anyway, uh, as, as life stacks up these layers of disappointments, may we fight against that, becoming bitter and snarky and having a, going back to that stage in life when we have opinions that really are not only baseless, but they're not fair. And you can end up polluting the younger be, uh, uh, people instead of building them up with wisdom. You're just transferring your bitterness. So we all have to guard against half-baked opinions of youth and fully-baked bitterness of our latter years. Have I covered everyone with that? There's a little baby back in the nursery that had no sins committed, but all the codes are there. And it's not when, uh, if they will sin, it is when. We're all guilty before God because we are born in iniquity. So uh, how did Paul deal with bitterness? How did he deal with his failure? How did he deal with this situation? How did he not be opinionated without a basis? Scripture. Jesus said this, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water, an artesian well. As the scripture has said, that is, you know, again, it won't, it won't insulate us from so many pains in life. But it is a lot better going through this life with Scripture than without it. And the righteous know it well. So his quotation to Scripture is not uh, condoning the act of violation against him. He's not pledging allegiance to the Jewish court. He is pledging allegiance to the God uh, uh, of his fathers, to his Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, even though the man, the, uh, the ruler is wicked. Now, some believe that Paul's vision was not good enough to see that it was the high priest, and I now believe that. Younger years, I wanted Paul to strike out, because that's what I want to do when somebody strikes me. Just counter, you know, become a counterpuncher. Uh, not, not counting one, two, three punches. Uh, that would be Sesame Street. But uh, to, to hit back when hit or swung at, and, and that's the flesh. It tells us in verse 1 that he looked earnestly at the council or intently, and that he did. But that doesn't mean he could make out their faces, and that's coming out in this story. It, uh, it is, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they would have been dressed in their garb. They did not have civilian clothes. They wanted the world to always know who they were. And so if Paul could see well, he would have identified that's the high priest. Now, he doesn't even know there are Sadducees and Pharisees there. Well, why not? They would have been in distinct garments. Uh, the garb would have been distinct because it's eyesight. But when he figures it out, then he's going to use it to his advantage. See, a very human element about all of this. Paul is on trial, and yet he's always looking for what is the best response to what I'm dealing with without sinning. And it is important because our flesh, again, wants to stick it to a guy like this Ananias here, the scoundrel. But the Spirit says, you know, if that creates an attitude of retaliation to which there is no end and the gospel is, is, is just uh, hindered by that kind of attitude. And so, uh, on the strength of two verses, earlier he wrote, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its, its lust. So he was a man that understood the dangers of um, an emotional response. Then Peter, later will write, but this is just another witness for us, Peter says, Speaking of Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, Peter said, I was there. I saw Jesus Christ trust the Father. That's how we're supposed to do it. That's what, what Peter is teaching. Uh, so, again, uh, uh, what Paul said, incidentally, about the high priest, he said out loud. And not only did he say it out loud, but they put it in print so that men will read till the end of time that the righteous man with indignation was the true man of God and the other man who was the high priest was the false man of God. Verse 6 now, And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. You'll see, there it is. He, if his eyesight was right, if he could see them, with you know, uh, if he could focus, he would have known, hey, i got Pharisees, Pharisees and Sadducees here. But he doesn't. He has to perceive it when he hears them bickering back and forth. Oh, I know what we got here. And so... Uh, this is what Jesus said about both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Mark, uh, pardon me, Matthew sixteen six. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, leaven is a metaphor for corruption. Because if you take the, you know, the flour and you wheat and you have the dough and you take leaven and you put it into the dough, 
you've corrupted the dough in the sense that it's now going to, uh, the leaven is going to spread throughout. So that's a, nothing sinful about that. But the metaphor captures uh, what corruption is. And, and there, uh, the, the Lord and everyone else that's righteous knows that. Verse 7, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So Paul knows. He, he, he likes the powder keg. He knows these are two opposing parties. Their doctrine does not agree. Uh, one is uh, strict with the scripture, but self-righteous, which, which blinds them. The other are, are what we call liberal theologians. They pick and choose what they like to believe, what the scripture says. They look, I don't like that one. That one didn't happen. And that's what the Sadducees were doing. Uh, you would think that the Pharisees would have had them stoned, but they didn't have enough power. The Sadducees were rich they, they, had the, they had the money and they had the power. So he realizes that uh, he's not going to get any justice here, that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And that's why he says, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, in verse 6, concerning the hope and the resurrection. That's the one that set the, the two parties against each other. Uh, so, so liberal theologians or liberal people when it comes to Scripture that approach, you get to pick and choose in the Bible what is true and what is not. And that renders God's word subservient to your opinion, your preference. And therefore, it's no longer God's word. It's your word if you, that, by that approach. And it is practiced, it is being practiced this morning as I'm standing here in, in places that assemble and say they're churches, but they have no scripture. Worse still is if they use just one or two scriptures. Because now you think, oh, see, they're using scripture. Yeah, it's window dressing. They're really not getting into what the word says. They really want to say what they want to say. And they're trying to say, and see, the scripture agrees with me. You have to watch that. I was just the other day cleaning out an area of old books and things. And I came across a book that I read in 1986. I was saved then. And I have all these highlights in there. Well, I had later learned that this person was a liberal theologian. And so the points that he was making, they were right if you believe that the Scripture alone is our authority. But he was so slick that he wrote in such a way that you'd have to know what school he is from to understand what he is saying, that Jesus isn't the only Savior. He will call Jesus the Savior for the Christians that believe he is the Savior. But other people have other Saviors. You see, that's that liberal stuff. And uh, it, is, uh, it is deadly, it is spiritually deadly, and it takes time. Well, what did I know uh, back then? I was new, and I just thought if you have it in a Christian bookstore and you put a Christian label on it, it's got to be right. Uh, beware lest anyone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit and the traditions of men, basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And so if you were to interrupt this author and say, excuse me, are you, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through him? Do you believe that? And then he would say, well, you know, 
Yeah, that's that would that would be your, your the beginning. So anyway, there are many. As I stand here, there are many uh, so-called churches out there doing this very thing and making people think that because they um, instead of scripture alone as their authority, they use alone scripture as they speak and they strip the authority of God's word out of our lives when really God's word has been demoted by them to a supporting role. Now, you may listen to me and say, you know, I don't like you saying that. But I'm right. And if I'm right by Scripture, then you should agree. Tozer said this, A.W. Tozer. And if you're a Christian, you don't know who the A.W. Tozer is, you're missing out. A soft breed of Christian that must be fed on a diet of harmless fun to keep them interested. You know anybody like that? You come here Sunday after Sunday and you endure almost an hour of verse-by-verse expository teaching. It's not the only place. There are other churches do the same thing. There are other good churches. They might not do it as well. They don't do it as well. We all know that. But I don't want to brag. And I'm not. not, I don't mean any of that. Uh, Well, coming back to this, how does a person get to be carefree about the afterlife? How does a person get to that place where it'll work out? Well, I think a key ingredient is to demote accountability. There's really no accountability. I can do what I want. That's what Ananias is doing. He he can do what he wants. He doesn't believe that one day he's going to stand in front of the God of Moses and be judged for this behavior. He is so far out there. He is so far away from that. Jesus said this, and this is the condemnation. That the light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's John 3 verse 19. And this is why the Sadducees could just dismiss the spiritual element of the scripture without feeling accountable to God. The Epicureans could just live in pleasure and never mind what's righteous or what's not uh, unrighteous as many people today. Verse 9, we're almost done, believe it or not. Then there arose a loud outcry. How many of you don't believe? <laughs> okay. Verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees part, party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit of an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against him. So they're, they're getting a chance, these Pharisees. They just want to stick it to the Sadducees. Uh, they don't really care about Paul. They just have an opportunity now to just uh, throw their weight around. These rich Sadducees are always bullying them. And so they say, well, you know, he, he, um, we find no evil in him. What, based on his just mention that he believes in a resurrection? I thought there was more to this whole story. What about his crimes that he was charged with? <laughs> Against Judaism. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, uh, at verse 9, uh, there arose this outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees are at each other. Uh, Pilate, too, had said he found no, no fault in Jesus. What if Pilate let Jesus go free? Well, Scripture would have been broken, and we'd be dead in our sins, if that were the end of the story. I say that to set this up. What if the Romans just let Paul go? Say, look at that. We don't have an agreement here. Half say you're guilty, half say you're not. You're free. Mistrial. What would have happened? They would have killed Paul. And we're going to get that next session in chapter 12 when they take a vow to kill. They hate this man. Uh, So uh, this is God 
protecting him using the Roman army. Things did not go as planned, but they weren't outside of God's plans. God was totally in control. And Paul's going to suffer a lot. He's going to go through shipwreck, get bitten by a viper. And he's going to go through a lot of stuff. But under all of that, God is in total control of his life. Because Paul is totally submitted. So when you get bit by vipers, you ask God. He's watching you ask, where is he? So he's right there. He's not going anywhere. And a word, what I tell myself is I say, take the pain. Just take the pain. Because uh, there's really not much you can do about it. Or you could lose your integrity. Verse, 20, verse 10. Now when he, there arose a great dissension... Now they're really at it with each other, right? A great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So a disaster, this trip you would think from the outside. Paul had high hopes for preaching to these former colleagues. But he factored out how fanatical they were, and his hope was crash. And he's going to be depressed. Well, I don't want to use that word. I'm not using the clinical word, as it's called. But he was certainly is down in his spirit over this. It is helpful to see this great man of God is bummed out to the point where the Lord's got to come and lift him up. God did not prohibit him from coming here. He did not prohibit him from kicking the hornet's nest by telling the truth. The next verse is going to verify what I'm saying. God is with Paul every step. And though his feelings are low and his great ambitions have been shattered, we know this by the opening words of this next verse. Look at verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome. Well, you only encourage somebody with, to cheer up when they're not cheered. You don't go to somebody who's dancing and having a good old time. Hey, 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 cheer up. <laughs> that would be, it's kind of insulting. Maybe someone's encouraging, I want you to be strong. And you're saying to yourself, I am strong at this point right now. God's already been with me. And I really don't like you suggesting that I'm falling apart. Well, Paul was falling apart to some degree. And the Lord doesn't tell him right away. He waits till the next night, he tells us. The following night, he left it on him. He left it on Paul to just, man, I failed. I had this golden opportunity to lead these people to the Lord, and it, it was a disaster. I should not have come to Jerusalem. I should have stayed with the Gentiles. I should have this. I should have that. And yet... That's not what happened. Paul and his circumstances, that is the daytime story. But Paul and his Lord, that is the nighttime story. And that's why it says that the following night, the Lord came to him. Psalm 76, 6, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. I remember when I was, things were dark in my life, but I still called out to the Lord because of that integrity of faith. He says, be of good cheer. And now Paul is being built up again, because he's going to go through this again. He's got more hardship on the way. Wait till he finds out how hated he is. No one wants to be hated. No one wants to fail. And, uh, you know, men hate him so much, they swear to God we're going to kill that guy. 
Four times in Acts, we have Paul being encouraged. Once in Corinth, where he was afraid for his life, is a mean city, and God said, I got people here, don't worry about it. We have another session when Paul tells us at his conversion that God said, you need to get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to receive you. We have this one here. And then we'll get one more when he's about to suffer shipwreck and God will stand by him and say, you're going to survive the shipwreck, but you're going to shipwreck. And there were non-swimmers on board. Imagine that caught in the Aegean Sea there, or the Mediterranean Sea uh, there on the Isle of Malta and you can't swim and it's a storm. And yet, everybody's surprised. So, not surprising, the man had taken beaten beatings. I'm closing with this. Uh, and also, he was abandoned by James in the Jerusalem church. There's no mention of them ever again. Not even, you know, a fruit basket. And that's got to hurt. And yet, he, he, for crimes he did not commit, he, he is going to serve the Lord. And proof that this was indeed the word of God to him comes out in the next chapter when God saves him from assassination through his nephew, through, through Paul's nephew. Let, let's pray. Our Father, just action-packed life in front of us as a believer, trying to save souls, uh, being abused, persecuted, being hated, and yet um, there you are with the believer strengthening us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You're going to think I stand too far away from you at times. That's okay. You just know that I am here. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We know that you understand uh, how this life is under the curse. You yourself have come into view as one who suffered alongside of us, uh, learning obedience by the things experienced, we're told, so that we could be more sure that you understand our sicknesses, you understand our disgust, whether it is on those who are evil or on ourselves. You understand our fears when our children are sick. You, you, you see it all, the temptation, the seductions, the losses, the gains, the losses again. And yet, we are sure that you are with us and the day will come when we will be with you. And not only will we see you face to face and be loved, but that Christ-like character will be upon us and we'll never have to sin again. We won't sin ever again. If you've been listening and you have not offered your heart to Christ, then you're dead in your sins according to God. Your sin is your sin. And if it is not dealt with, your guilt will not allow you into heaven when you die. And you're going to die one day. To be ready for this death that is sure to come, God himself says, join me. Come to me. But you've got to treat me as God. And you've got to treat me as the Savior because that's who I am. And anything short of that is a lie. The world is telling you I am a lie, but I'm telling you I'm the truth and the way. And no man gets to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And if you want to come into heaven, make this confession and mean it. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, one who breaks your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. If I don't break them on the outside, I break them on the inside. But I break your commandments. And I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior from this day forward.
There is no one else good enough to have died for my sins and no one strong enough to rise again in proof that they have been taken away. The judgment is gone. And now, Father, if anyone has made this confession of faith to come to you, may they not be ashamed. And when the invitation is given, may they step forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.